A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 198, Heavy Lifting. Welcome back to the narrative. Today we're going to cover the rebellion of Alexius Komnenos and set things up for his 37 years on the throne. But to get there we're going to have to do some heavy lifting first. We need to remind ourselves of the chaos we're stepping back into and we need to greet a large number of characters in a complex web of family relationships. By the end of today's instalment, we'll be ready to move forward again properly, but it's worth knowing before we begin that things are going to get worse for the Romans before they get better. Alexius's coronation is not the end of this period of crisis, just an interlude. The rise of any emperor involves the actions and interests of a large number of people. But history is simpler and clearer when we eliminate the supporting cast and focus only on the leading players. The story of Alexius Komnenos is unusual in that respect, because a wide array of character actors not only play important parts in his rise, but then remain on stage, forming part of a new ruling coalition. To see the full picture, we need to wind the clock back further than the Battle of Manzikert. We need to return to the deathbed of Constantine Monomachos in 1055. Monomachos was the man in charge when the triple threat of Normans, Pechenegs and Turks first appeared on the scene. And as he lay dying, he appointed a capable military governor to be his successor which made sense since the empire was clearly going to have to fight on multiple fronts. He didn't get his way, though. A tug-of-war ensued between civilian and military factions until the general Isaac Komnenos captured the throne in 1057. Isaac tried to arrest the decline in Roman fortunes, but he fell ill and abdicated just two years later. Isaac was Alexius's uncle. Isaac's brother, John, was a fellow high-ranking general who had eight children, many of whom we'll be getting to know. As you may recall, Isaac handed the throne over to his good friend and fellow general, Constantine Ducas, who, I assume, he expected to continue 
his attempts to reboot the Empire's military position. For reasons we don't quite understand, he didn't. His reign was oddly passive, as Turkish raids intensified across the Eastern Front. During Dukas's eight years at the top, John Komnenos's gaggle of children remained a prominent part of court life. This was a slightly awkward arrangement. As you know, imperial regimes usually ditch those who were once in proximity to power. But given that Isaac had generously nominated Constantine for the throne, the Dukas family had to keep the Komnenos clan around as a sort of junior branch of the royal family. Constantine Dukas died in 1067 with Anatolia in real danger. The throne passed to his passive son, Michael VII, and Michael's mother decided to marry the strapping Romanos Theogenes in the hope that he would restore the eastern defences. Romanos tried his best, but was defeated at the Battle of Manzikert. During this period, the sons of Dukas were kept in the palace to prop up the regime, while the sons of Komnenos were out serving the empire in the field. The eldest of John's sons, Emmanuel, died of an illness while on campaign, while the next two boys, Isaac and Alexius, gathered valuable experience. Isaac became governor of Antioch, while Alexius was sent to negotiate with the Normans, who were siphoning off provinces in the post-Manzikert chaos. The regime of Michael Dukas lost several armies trying to restore order in Anatolia, and these repeated failures tarnished the reputations of many a general, and meant that Alexius was put in charge of troops, even though he was still in his early twenties. We've now finally caught up to our last narrative episode, number 195, King of the Ashes. With Michael's government at rock bottom, two rebellions broke out simultaneously in East and West, Nicephorus Vurianios in the West and Nicephorus Votaniates in the East. It was the man from Anatolia, Votaniates, who succeeded, but as I commented at the time, it was the most pointless of revolutions, Already in his 70s, Votaniates made no major changes to government. He married Michael Dukas's wife and agreed to maintain the rights of his predecessor's infant son. With the Dukas family on his side, Votaniates turned to the Komnenos clan. He asked Alexius to lead the loyalist armies out to put down Nicephorus Vurianios. This was doubly sad for Byzantium, not only would Vurianios have made a better choice for emperor than his rival, but in order to defeat him, Alexius had to bring Turkish mercenaries into Thrace to kill Romans. As you may remember, the ensuing battle would be written about by Vurianios's grandson and Alexius's daughter, who would, much later, be married to help heal the wounds that were inflicted that day. Since imperial legitimacy was non-existent at this point, Alexius's victory only brought forth two more contenders to the throne. Vurianios's lieutenant in the Balkans now declared himself emperor, and Alexius had to travel to Thessalonica to defeat him, while Alexius's brother-in-law, Nicephorus Melissinos, rose in revolt in Anatolia. 
Melisinos was another important general who'd been married to Alexius's sister to keep him close to the Ducas Comnenos clans. He'd been sidelined by Votaniates and now gathered the few Roman troops left on the west coast of Anatolia and marched on the Asian suburbs of Constantinople. It's hard to single out Melisinos for blame during a period when there is plenty to go round, but in mustering his army he'd stripped the coastal towns of their native garrisons and handed them over to Turkish mercenaries. This was done on the understanding that they would answer to him once he was emperor, but you don't need hindsight to see the foolishness in this decision. The Turks, loose in Anatolia, had not quite coalesced into a force that could capture walled cities. The difficult business of forging steppe tribes into a state was made so much easier by the Romans handing over their keys. As you can see then, the past 25 years of Roman history could be written as a family drama. The Ducas and Komnenos clans jostling with one another, kinship and rivalry baked into their interactions. Before we resume our story, though, we need to add two more dynastic complications. Back in 1066, Robert Giscard, the Norman leader in Italy, had attempted to gather a fleet and cross the Adriatic Sea. The government at Constantinople were well aware of the danger Giscard posed. So in an attempt to turn him into an ally, they agreed that his daughter would one day become empress. She was betrothed to Michael Ducas's infant son, Constantine. They then sent Robert a boatload of cash and the right to assign court titles to his followers. They were desperate for him to stay in Italy and were willing to pay a very high price to achieve that goal. But in the analysis of Antony Caldellus, both offers were big mistakes. The money was an indication of weakness, something that attracted Normans like sharks to blood. And the betrothal only created a legalistic pretext which Robert was bound to exploit. Sure enough, the fall of Michael Ducas, Robert's benefactor, provided him with the rationale to gather his forces for an invasion of Byzantium. So while the Romans endured multiple civil wars, the Normans began gathering a new fleet to cross the Adriatic. With more war on the horizon, it was expected that the aging emperor would appoint Alexius Komnenos as his heir. This would keep his one loyal general happy and signal a clear succession plan. Instead, he let it be known that he favoured his nephew, Nicephorus Synodinos. And so, we resume our story. It was early in 1081 when this news became widely known. Not only did it tick off Alexius, but it threatened Votaniates' own wife. Maria was a Georgian princess and renowned beauty, who now stood as guardian for the interests of her six-year-old son, Constantine Ducas. A desire to protect their position doubtless influenced her in agreeing to marry the septuagenarian Votaniates. There was no guarantee that her husband's nephew would safeguard her family, and so she turned to the Komnenos brothers. 
Isaac and Alexius were at the capital that spring, and according to the Alexiad, made common cause with Maria. Isaac was already married to Maria's cousin, so they may well have been on good terms. Quite what the relationship was between Alexius and Maria is more complicated. Our historian is, of course, Alexius's future daughter, Anna. And Anna says that Maria adopted Alexius. Quite how official this adoption was, we aren't sure, but she was essentially giving him the okay to overthrow her husband and become part of the ruling family. Anna does acknowledge that at the time, there were rumours that the two were having, or about to have, an affair. Maria and Alexius were both in their twenties, whereas she was married to the 70-plus-year-old emperor, while Alexius was married to the now 14-year-old Irene Ducaina, daughter of Andronicus Ducas, the man who's accused of abandoning Romanos Theoyenes on the field of Manzikert. Whatever was really going on, Alexius and Isaac soon left the capital and began gathering troops in Thrace. Anna claims that Votaniates's ministers were conspiring against them, and so they had to flee the city and reluctantly lead a revolution. Some modern historians disregard this entirely and assume that Alexius simply mustered troops for the forthcoming campaign against the Normans and then took his chance to seize the throne. It's worth saying that Isaac was the older brother, by about seven years, but it was, at this point, Alexius's army, which was gathering down the road from Adrianople. As they hastened to the army camp, the brothers requested help from two notable allies. One was the Caesar, John Ducas, who was in retirement on his estates nearby. John was Constantine Ducas's brother, who had been very influential during his brother and nephew's reigns. He'd been a good friend of Michael Pselos, and he had plenty of money. He brought resources and know-how to the rebellion. The other ally they encountered was George Paleologos. George was a fellow military commander who was married to Irene's sister, as in he and Alexius had both married into the Caesar John Ducas's family. George will become one of Alexius's most trusted allies, and in case you didn't know, the Paleologos family are destined to have a major role in the history of Byzantium. With John and George in tow, the Komnenos brothers led their army to the Theodosian walls, arriving at some point in March. Though he was outnumbered, Votaniates had enough men to comfortably garrison the formidable defences. Soon, news came that Alexius's rival for power, Nicephorus Melissinos, was poised on the other side of the Bosphorus. Melissinos was conciliatory, though. He announced his willingness to negotiate with his brother-in-law. Alexius offered him the title of Caesar, but did not wait to hear his response. Instead, the old Caesar, John Ducas, rode up and down the walls to see if he could make contact with any pliable troops. The Adrianople Gate was guarded by a unit of German mercenaries known as the Nemitzi. They indicated their interest in a bribe, took what was offered, and opened the gates on the 1st of April, Holy Thursday. Alexius's troops poured in 
and began looting the city. Anna essentially admits that her father's men raped, stole from churches, and stripped the rich of their wealth. She claims that they didn't kill anyone, though our other historian, the chronicler John Zonorus, says that, obviously, they did. Anna does mention that native Roman troops behaved just as badly as their barbarian colleagues. I won't make excuses for soldiers committing atrocities, but I suppose it's worth reminding you that the Empire's coins had been debased repeatedly in the past decade alone, so these men had seen their pay slashed by a third or more in recent days, and doubtless many justified their actions based on the thought that they were owed the money that they were taking from the homes of the elite. We would expect to hear at this point that Alexius raced to the palace to secure the throne, but Anna implies that the looting soldiers were out of control, and that her father and uncle found their path blocked around the Forum of Constantine by the ever-loyal Varangian Guard. This suggests that Alexius's army was quite small, just a few thousand men probably, otherwise the looting of the city would have been remembered in even stronger terms, and Alexius would have made it to the palace that day. Up in the palace, Votaniates was wondering whether he should allow Nicephorus Melissinos to land his men in the city and take Alexius's looting soldiers by surprise. I can't tell if that was ever likely to happen, but it would have been an astonishing climax to the collapse of Roman power to see civil war consume the very streets of Constantinople itself. Instead, George Palaiologos rushed to the harbour and took charge of the home fleet, rousing the sailors to acclaim Alexius as emperor and cut off any attempt to make contact with Melissinos. Votaniates now offered to share the purple with Alexius and allow the younger man to govern, but the Caesar John Ducas insisted that this suggestion be discarded. According to Anna, it took three more days for the negotiations to conclude peacefully. The patriarch Cosmas persuaded the emperor to finally leave the palace and enter a monastery. Then the archbishop returned to the Hagia Sophia, and on the 4th of April, 1081, crowned Alexius Komnenos emperor of the Romans. Alexius was born in 1057, and so was just 24 years old when he became Basilefs. He was not a very tall man, Anna concedes, but she lavishes praise on his broad shoulders, radiant eyes, and eloquent speech. He had almost no experience of administration, but had been around army camps since he was a teenager. He was 14 when Romanus was defeated at Manzikert, and he'd been fighting a running battle against the Empire's decline ever since. He must have had a pretty good idea of what he was up against, but allow me to lay it out for you in case you've forgotten. Almost the whole of Anatolia would soon be out of Roman hands, and with it went at least half of the Empire's revenue. Tribes of Pechenegg still lived north of the Hemus Mountains, now in alliance with the cities along the Danube who'd thrown off imperial control. And Robert Giscard, 
an extremely tough and experienced military commander, was about to assault the city of Dyrrhachium, as a prelude to invading the Balkan provinces. If he succeeded, it could easily provoke a Balkan-wide uprising amongst the Serbians and Bulgarians, whose allegiance to Byzantium depended on Roman strength. That strength was ebbing away. The armies were shattered by two decades of constant war and civil war. Every time an experienced Roman died, he had to be replaced either by a raw recruit or a barbarian mercenary. Often the best mercenaries available were either Normans or Turks. At the capital, the honour system that bound the elites to the emperor was bankrupt. The Byzantine gold coin, the Nomisma, was about to be debased down to just 10% gold content in order to meet Alexius's expenses. And although we know that Alexius will rule for the next four decades, no one else knew that. Alexius was just the latest man to try and seize the throne amidst the chaos. Why him and not me? More attempts are on their way. There's no doubt that this was the greatest crisis facing the empire since the Arab siege of 717. And perhaps Heraclius's position a century earlier is an even better comparison point. Both Heraclius and Alexius took charge of empires that had undergone very shocking and very swift collapses. Was Alexius up to the Herculean, or should I say Heraclean, challenge that lay ahead? What followed Alexius's coronation was a sort of protracted negotiation between the Komnenos and Ducas clans. They all moved into the palace together, but notably Alexius allowed the Empress Maria to stay in her apartments, while his wife, who he'd probably never lived with, remained in a more distant part of the complex. This is where the rumours really kicked in about Alexius and Maria. Tensions were high because some were in favour of Alexius ditching his wife and marrying the Empress in order to weaken Ducas' influence on power. Whereas, of course, the Ducas clan were very keen to make sure that Irene Ducaina became the next empress. A deal seems to have been struck between the senior members of the family. John Ducas got what he wanted, and a week later young Irene was crowned empress. Maria moved out of the palace, but her young son, Constantine Ducas, remained heir to the throne a situation which suited everyone so long as Alexius had no children of his own. Keeping young Constantine around also provided political cover for Alexius's usurpation, since he could claim, like Phocas and Zimisces before him, to be acting merely as a guardian. On the Komnenos side of the family, Alexius's mother, Anna Thalassini, was doing the negotiating. She agreed to this infusion of Dukai into the imperial order so long as she could get a patriarch of her own choosing. John Ducas was an old friend of Archbishop Cosmas and persuaded him to step down soon after this in favour of a monk who happened to be a client of Anna's. Before he went, though, the patriarch insisted that the imperial family do very public penance for the crimes committed by Alexius's troops during the coup. 
The Vasilefs allegedly wore sackcloth under his purple robes and slept on the ground for forty days. With Alexius's personal arrangements in order, negotiations switched to the wider family. You might be surprised to hear that Alexius honoured his offer to Nicephorus Melissenus, the rebel from across the Bosphorus. Not only did Alexius appoint him Caesar, but he also sent him to govern Thessalonica and encouraged him to keep the local tax revenues to himself. This should strike you as a very surprising decision. It had been imperial practice forever to exile, blind, tonsure, castrate, or kill those who claimed to be emperor, regardless of their family connection to you. Alexius not only ignored this time-honoured tradition, but he invested his brother-in-law with everything a rival would need to stir up trouble again. He was giving him a provocative title, troops to command, and a power base from which to launch a coup. And yet... Melusinos stayed loyal and fought alongside Alexius for the rest of his life. We will talk more about this innovation in statecraft, but it seems that the extended Komnenos Dukas clan accepted that something had to change if they were going to hold the empire together. After five pretenders to the throne had risen in the last couple of years, they couldn't go on making enemies. So instead of shunning Melissenos, they embraced him. They invested him with imperial authority, making him part of the ruling coalition. The decision to assign him Thessalonica's revenues will also be analysed further, but at a time of war, dislocation and debasement, this may have been seen as a useful expedient to keep the city's resources in loyal hands. Despite embracing his brother-in-law, Alexius did not intend to make Melissinos the second most powerful man at court. That role would naturally go to his brother Isaac. But having given the title of Caesar to Nicephorus as promised, what could he do? The simple answer was to invent a new title. The Greek equivalents for Augustus and Imperator, Sebastos and Autocrator, had long ago been discarded in favour of Vasilefs, but they were now dusted off and combined so that Isaac could enjoy the title Sebastocrator. He and the Caesar would both be allowed to wear crowns at public festivals. Again, we might raise an eyebrow. Some imperial brothers have got on well, but many have not. We only need to go back to Basil II to see an example of one brother keeping the other as far away from power as possible. Here, though, I think we are really seeing a family making decisions together. What the Empire needed most was a military leader, an emperor out in the field to keep the armies loyal and focused. So Alexius, in a sense, had to become the Vasilevs. But he didn't have to do everything. Isaac could function as the emperor at home, while Alexius was away. Isaac was, after all, older and much more experienced with administration, having already served as dukes of Antioch. So Isaac would stay behind and be in charge of things at the capital. Instead of fearing or snubbing him, it was decided to create a new title, 
the august imperator, almost a, a vice-emperor. Power could be shared between the two brothers, while resentment would hopefully be minimised. New titles were also found for Alexius's younger brothers, Adrianos and Nicephorus, who were also given practical jobs in the administration. Finally, Alexius's mother stepped out of the shadows, revealing that she'd been the one banging heads together all this time. When the emperor finally left the city to go and fight the Normans, an imperial edict announced that in his absence, his mother's decisions were to be treated as his own. This extraordinary proclamation gave her full imperial authority, even above Isaac. Anna Thalassini was clearly a formidable woman. The Thalassinos family were another of the Anatolian magnate clans, and they had prepared their daughter well for a life in politics. She had ensured that all her children made important marriage alliances, and had lobbied hard to avoid being pushed out of power by the Ducas clan. Now that her son had triumphed, it was to her that he turned. If there have been too many names and relatives to take in in today's episode, then do check out the family trees that I've put up at thehistoryofbyzantium.com and on social media. I will, of course, remind you of who is married to who as we go forward. Next time, Alexius marches to Dyrrhachium to tangle with Robert Giscard. It will be a bitter and bloody war that will drain the Byzantines of the last few native troops at their disposal. But for now at least, the old truism holds firm. The Romans may lose the battle, but they always win the war. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.